Welcome to episode 30 of the Kevin Doherty podcast. My guest today is Shane Purcell. Shane is one of my earliest childhood friends who now lives in the UK, working as a cardiac rehab exercise specialist for the NHS. Shane is someone who is focused, highly ambitious, and a product of his decisions. Here are some of the things we talked about in today's episode. Working on the front line for the NHS throughout the pandemic. Becoming a cardiac rehab exercise specialist. Motivational interviewing. A tool to enact behaviour change. Nature versus nurture. Becoming a landlord. Work-life balance. And sudden adult death syndrome. Thanks for listening. Shane Purcell, how are you getting on, man? I'm good, Kevin. Thank you. Uh, I've been getting by in the times that we're in. Very strange. I guess you're getting uh, bored of that kind of comment every time. It's like, oh, same old, same old. It's just the way it is, though. It's like whenever whenever you start one of these podcasts, it's like, how the fuck do you not address the elephant in the room that is the mm. current pandemic? What's it like over there? Um, we're It's getting better now. We're going into like a, a phased return back to normal life um so for example from next week now um outdoor venues like tennis courts basketball courts kind of uh, outdoor swimming will be open so thankfully myself i can get back into swimming so it feels like we're getting into some normality vaccines outcomes were about over a third of the way of true the population that have been vaccinated their first dose need two in total so i think it's people are seeing a light at the end of the tunnel after over a year of basically lockdown as such to varying degrees that's good to hear like i think the one thing that the uk has definitely provided is a roadmap out whereas if you look at ireland's current predicament there's just no telling when we're going to get a little bit more freedom and when this current lockdown is going to fully end it's it's a little bit um disheartening like I suppose you've been in a very interesting uh, situation during the pandemic because you work for the NHS. Yes. What has your experience been since the beginning of the pandemic working as a cardiac rehab specialist? Um, so it's been very interesting and diverse. It's and also extremely challenging, like from a from a personal point of view, as opposed to the, how the NHS is working and the UK is working, it's, we were, for example, it's all about doing your part. Um, but sometimes it's nice to do your part when you have the choice. So when it came to um, the pandemic, and I imagine it's the same in Ireland with the HSC, we didn't have the option where we wanted to work from home. We didn't have the option where we wanted to I, I don't want to work. I want to stay at home and I want to take like 75% of my wage, whatever has been offered to normal employees. So we were kind of forced into without consultation, you're changing to a different role. You're going into a high risk area where you're seeing COVID patients. There's a high likelihood you're going to get COVID yourself. Um, and with the, with the population <clears throat> in the UK and in Ireland, there's a lot of obese people. So that's also 
is the same for NHS staff. There's a lot of people who are in their 70, sorry, in their 30s, 40s, or overweight, they have medical conditions and were put into high risk areas and they didn't really have a choice whether um, could they work at home or if they had to do it. And I, I know some colleagues that they may have been fit and well, but psychologically they didn't want to get into that and they had uh, meetings with the managers and higher authorities and they weren't allowed to do that so to be redeployed it was it was very challenging and you want to do your bit but you obviously don't it's a job at the end of the day and you didn't necessarily sign up for that for example if you sign up to be part of the army if you sign up part to be the police force if you sign up to part to be fire brigade you're excelling you're accepting a certain element of risk to that job role that something may happen to me but I'm 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 realizing that risk but when you sign up as a nurse as a physiotherapist as a dietitian as a as a nurse you're not signing up for that risk and you were put yourself in that risk so it was quite challenging to to accept that and particularly when you had people the um the public who didn't necessarily believe the pandemic or believe that covid was in existence and you see them kind of doing what they want when they want to do it and not really abiding by restrictions. It was more demoralizing in a way. You were the first person that I heard in my close circle that contracted COVID. What was that like for you? Um, so at the beginning, it was quite nerve wracking in a sense because I contracted COVID probably around... April or May last year. So it was only maybe two, three months into the pandemic. So it was quite early. And there was lots of videos going around as to what it would feel like if you contracted COVID. So you had some people who were, it was like just a blip in their radar. Um, and you had other people who were, became severely ill. It was understood that if you were in your 60s, 70s, that you were ill, but if you were younger, you weren't. Um, so it was it was very mixed reviews. So I didn't know what to expect. Fortunately for myself, it it did hit me, but not quite like I had the flu before, and it didn't hit me quite as bad as that. But I, I believe I was just fortunate. I had a very strong exercise history, uh, very uh, no medical history or conditions to my name. So other than a dodgy hip, so that didn't really. So I had a lot of things on my side for for contracting COVID. Um, but at the at the beginning, people didn't know what to do. For example, if you look at the NHS now, and I imagine same in Ireland, if you see go into a patient scenario, you have to be wearing gloves, goggles, apron. When I was redeployed at the beginning, we weren't allowed to wear gloves. We weren't allowed to wear goggles. We weren't allowed to wear face mask because when I was seeing on my first redeployment, we were seeing vulnerable patients at home, making sure they're okay. But we did, the idea, they didn't want to be scared. So if they, if I came in in a gown, gloves and goggles, the idea was you're scaring the patient, you're making them feel unsafe. So therefore we weren't allowed to wear that equipment or we were advised not to wear it. And of course that's a total U-turn now. Uh, but that was the, because it was lack of understanding. So we were, so there's a lot of, staff members who were put in high-risk situations without fully knowing what they were going into without the proper equipment not because there was a lack of equipment because we were like they didn't know what was to protect yourself in terms of morale 
within the NHS. Like it, it's really interesting that you mm. kind of brought up the point. If you sign up for the army, eventually you're expecting so- to be involved in some sort of a conflict. But mm. the NHS employees never saw this coming. What has morale been like throughout the pandemic in your team or the people that you're close with in the in the medical system? Um, so I think team support has been great, Stuart, and for example, in relation to supporting our team members. Like I was on another redeployment and myself and my colleague, we met up once a week. We were doing two separate roles on redeployment, but we met up once a week. And that was quite useful just to have some normality of speaking to our team members, venting our frustrations a little bit, talking about our experiences. So that was helpful. But in relation to as a whole, it was it was very challenging. People responded differently. I've known some co- some colleagues that have gotten psychological therapies just to help deal with what's going on because of what you're seeing as well. It's like, for example, I don't work in a and I don't work in surgery. So I'm not really seeing these traumatic scenes of some of our nurses were redeployed to say COVID wars and they're seeing patients dying left, right and center. They weren't nearly, they weren't nearly dietitians, for example, are seeing that, should I say. And it's not, they've never seen that in their life. They just have, you know, consultants about basic nutrition, um, living heart health, etc. what foods to be beneficial for that. And then all of a sudden they're, they're seeing patients undergoing cardiac arrest, seeing patients on ventilators, seeing patients in of r- ranges of ages, not just in your 60s and 70s, just seeing very poor critical conditions and how to even cope with that from a mental point of view. And then to be taught, like, as you we mentioned earlier about a roadmap, at the beginning, we didn't have a roadmap. You were redeployed. We don't know how long it's going to be for. We don't know when you're going to get back to your team. It may be in a two or three weeks. It may be in three or four months. We don't know. And that was the, the it, there was no end to it was the challenge. And I always often refer to it was like this, it was the hidden or silent enemy. You couldn't see it. You didn't know how to fight it at the beginning. You didn't know what your defense was. So, yeah. That's really fascinating. And it's something that I probably haven't really considered about the frontline staff that a lot of people would have developed PTSD throughout this time. Mm. Like from your perspective, what were some of the more traumatic events throughout your working in the pandemic? I think, um, fortunately for me, I'm, I'm, I have a wife, but I have no family. Um, we have no kids, etc. What I mean is, and um, so I didn't have any kind of kid responsibilities in relation to that. But some of these individuals who worked nine to five um, were now going on to 12 hour shifts which could be an eight to eight. Um, it was generally an either 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. or 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. So it was either the morning shift or the night shift. And then all of a sudden they're working 12 hour shifts. They have kids to look after. They're not really seeing the kids. They're not really able to bring them to school. They're not really. And it was just those effects really. And then they spent maybe 10 years working their nine to five, get into a routine. And then that's also just thrown up in the air. Some of the more traumatic things you'll be seeing then is just it, it's just like you were you were thrown into the 
as you said, the front line into the, the war zone as such, and you had not really any training or any coping mechanisms for that. Because at the first time of redeployment or at the beginning of when it first started, you were thrown into a role that you had nothing, that you had no experience in. So I keep referring to kind of dietitians, but it, it's, there was a lot of people in a similar position where a dietitian was, who has no clinical experience working treating patients acutely who are ill are now being put in that role so they're now working on the wards they're administer helping nurses administer various drug treatments etc and it's just normally to be working in the roles like that um you have to go through certain training and even if we were to apply for the roles we wouldn't get them because we don't have the qualifications but then all of a sudden you're, you're secret you're magically given the qualifications or experience to work there the, the term mental health has been bandied about a lot. Um, for staff working for the NHS, were there any supports put in place at the start of the pandemic to help them during this traumatic time? Or even recently, has there been any aftercare of going through the first, second and third waves of this? So I think at the beginning, it was more about didn't know how to react. So they kind of redeployed staff. They've made big changes. It was kind of, you found out the next week you were going to do something. There was no consultation. Um, and it, mental health at the time, I believe, from my personal experience, actually, I can't say the NHS in general, but from my personal experience, I didn't feel like there was much support from that aspect. And if you had concerns, you speak to your manager, but there wasn't much they could do. Um, as time went by, you had various kind of society kind of helping the morale a little bit in relation to clapping for the NHS. Um, it was like, can I ask, yeah, can I ask yeah? did that help you? Yes and no. At the beginning, there was kind of like, like you may, I heard stories of, not personally myself, but I heard stories like uh, some individual might be walking out to their car and then people would know that they work for the NHS and they would start to know, giving appreciation, giving applause, and it helped morale. Um, so it did find it helped morale at the beginning. But what when it lost its use is when you get people clapping for the NHS, which was, say, I think it was like every Thursday at like, you know, say six o'clock or every seven o'clock, whatever it would have been. But when you see in the news of people disobeying the rules and and just doing what they want and saying this virus isn't real. So then it was like, it was kind of like two-faced in a way, you could kind of say in a sense that you're there clapping for the NHS, but you're also not abiding by the rules. So towards the end, we didn't want you to clap for the NHS. We didn't want you to clap for us. We just wanted you to, as best you could, go by the rules. And that's how you would support us. Because like, that's what we wanted because we didn't want to do what we wanted we were doing. We wanted to get back to normal life, just like everybody. And the further people were disobeying the rules, the longer that would take. And then later on, the NHS, I, I felt there personally, we, there was some other ones. Like, for example, there was plenty of companies that would offer free food. They would deliver pizzas. They would deliver. We had um, just recently at Christmas, Lint um, um, delivered loads of chocolate um, um, to us in relation to like big Santa chocolates and box of chocolates. There was loads of times the Cadbury's donated uh, loads of Easter eggs to us. There was loads of individuals that delivered pizzas or it might've been 
sandwiches, etc. There was lots of discounts for NHS staff. There was lots of discounted or free Uber rides. There was free parking for NHS staff in government bays. Um, so when you normally you, you had to pay when you parked at a hospital or you had to have a staff permit and pay a certain monthly fee, but the, they kind of exempted all of those fees. Towards the end, there recently we were given an extra day of annual leave as for as well as our birthday. Sorry, we're given on our birthday we were allowed to have an an, an annual leave day. So in October, I'm allowed to have a day off. Uh-huh. <laughs> and there was you were allowed to when you were finished redeployment, they were giving you a week off. But that's only recently. These weren't changes that happened at the beginning. So as the pandemic they understood what was happening, the impact it was having, the changes of mental health and trying to benefit came in of running seminars, running weekly exercise classes, whatever it may have been. But it was all in the, the second half, you could say, of the last year, as opposed to the beginning when people actually really needed it. It was more reactive than proactive. It, like I can appreciate how yes. demoralizing it must have been to essentially be a frontline soldier fighting against an invisible enemy that the people you're trying to defend, some of them didn't even think it was a real thing. Looking at you specifically, how did you get into the area of cardiac rehab? Um, when I started out, I was working the area of sport and science, which was um, basically trying to be a strength conditioning coach, so maybe working with a soccer team, a rugby team, and trying to help develop their fitness for that particular sport. But as I developed, I felt like in myself, I wanted to do more. Um, I wanted to help people. And I wanted to help people that I felt in a way were a little bit vulnerable and didn't really get the assistance that they required. So then I started looking into more clinical exercise, which is just working with people with certain medical conditions and how they can still be active. Because a lot of times when something happens to an individual, they may get a back injury, they may get a knee injury, they may have a heart attack, it might be some cancer, and whatever the medical condition be, they've, they, they don't know how to move forward. So then in their mind, I can't exercise, I can't do anything. But that's, that's not quite the case. As long as you understand the individual, you can, anyone can exercise. So then I just got more into, as I said, clinical exercise. And then specifically, I, I had an interest in cardiac rehab, or from the cardiology side of things. And then I reached out to some individuals on LinkedIn sent quite a few emails and quite a few kind of random friend requests and to say I like the area you're in cardiac rehab or cardiology um I'm thinking about getting into the same area can you are you free for conversation at some stage to maybe discuss how myself who were not involved what would the pathway I need to take to get into that area and I found people were very helpful and very open to that and and I think if you're helping patients, you kind of want to, the more people you can get to kind of be in a similar role, they're kind of, it helps, I guess. What fascinates you about cardiology? I think it's just how the heart works. And like, obviously you have the hearts, you have the lungs, you have the brain. There's a lot of powerhouses within the body, but I feel like with cardiovascular disease is one of the biggest killers. Um, it's always, it's sort of, uh, cardiovascular disease or, or cancers are kind of usually the top two but cardiovascular disease is one of the biggest killers and and if I work in secondary care at the beginning of my career I work in primary care so primary while you're trying to educate people to prevent them from having the heart attack 
or the cardiovascular disease, where I now work in secondary care where people have already had the event. So kind of the difference again between being proactive and reactive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty much. So I'm in the reactive, but it's it's very fascinating. Like the people are very open uh, most of the time to your advice. And there's the, the, the heart is so complicated as well. And there's so many different areas that you could go down in relation to cardiovascular disease in relation can be some lifestyle factors that may impact it. It may be some genetic factors. It affects both young, like kids, adults, senior individuals. It goes across the whole range. And it's the certain areas that are still misunderstood in relation to the heart and that are still gathering media attention. And I think just to be involved in that and just to help any people any way I can was kind of what got me into it. In terms of the av- advice and plan you'd put together for somebody, how would it differ between the likes of a 30-year-old versus a 60-year-old? Like, what are the, what are the recommendations and what, how do you structure a plan for these people? Mm. So there actually isn't a big difference. Like, so ignoring their kind of what specific condition they have, obviously there's certain recommendations that you to go or go by, but... If you have someone as a 30-year-old who has a heart attack and someone as a 60-year-old, the main thing you're trying to do to begin with, and when I work in cardiac rehab, so we work as part of a multidisciplinary team, which is nurses, cardiac nurses, uh, cardiac uh, psychologists, cardiac dietitians, um, cardiologists who are looking after their medical care, and people like myself, uh, exercise specialists. So we, as a team, we're trying to speak to this person from all those different disciplines and say, try to get them to understand what happened to them. To say that, yes, it's been traumatic, depending on what they had, but there's a way back to normal life with some changes in relation to kind of more having a more healthier lifestyle, be it from an exercise or a nutrition point of view, whatever it may be. So I think it's just that, it's just kind of, when you're speaking to both those individuals, it's kind of getting to understand, getting to come to terms with what happened. Some people adjust quicker than others. And then just taking baby steps back to that. So maybe if someone was a runner before, you, that's their goal. You want to take week one, week two, week three, building up the intensity. If someone is a 70-year-old and they just want to get back to their normal day, you're focusing on more on daily tasks. Are they able to wash themselves, dress themselves? Are they able to cook dinner? Are they able to walk to local shops? Those functional daily tasks or activities of daily living, as they're called, that's their main focus. And that's what you're trying to get back to. And so if we move away from the more reactive work that you do now and look at a more proactive approach, like, again, as as somebody in their 30s, what are the like core tenants that you would recommend in terms of stress management, exercise, nutrition? So in relation to a, a, a certain person's cardiovascular disease risk, you have, without going into too much detail, you have modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors. So non-modifiable are things that you can't really change. Are these like genetic of, predispositions? Yes. So it's your age, um, it's your sex, like male, female, it's your ethnicity, and as I said, and all those predispose you to certain genetics. So for example, in relation to a heart attack, which is about a blockage of blood supply and about a buildup of plaque and, and 
in the arteries that generally is male 50s and 60s um, of uh, South Asian origin are more predisposed to that. And there's certain certain things you can change. But what you can change or at least alter and help reduce your percentages, it's all about a percentage game, is the modifiable risk factors. So as you mentioned there, you've got your exercise, you've got your nutrition, you've got your smoking, you've got your alcohol, um, and you've got your weight. And they all feed into factors like diabetes, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, and all those, all those impact on your percentage. So if we look at a specific area like stress mm-hmm. management, because I can imagine that having, having a, an unreasonable amount of stress in your life leads to bigger of these like more dangerous cardiac events. What's your perspective on stress and stress management? So that can vary from person to person. Like it's, it's, it's difficult to say that stress is bad for you because um, for me, um, when I'm working or when I'm doing things, I need to be under a little bit of stress because it motivates me. It gets me up in the morning. Like if I wasn't had a little bit of stress, um, why would I even go to work or why would I even do the study I do? So you need stress a little bit just to push you forward for you, make you in some cases to strive to achieve better that external motivator as such. But then I guess it's just on a kind of a, a wave system is where are you on that wave? Are you at the top of the wave where you're at that level of stress where any little bit more, you're just going to plummet down and just kind of crash and burn as such. So stress is just one of the risk factors as well because it, it, it can flare up damage in the arteries um, and contribute to cardiovascular disease. Um, and sometimes people are doing things that contribute to that. So, for example, like if you have a high caffeine consumption, it contributes to your your sympathetic nervous system, which basically just means your fight or flight system. If you're engaged in high intensity exercise, like spinning, if you're in a high stressful job, probably combining that with spinning is not going to be the best option for you. Um, also, kind of having a alcohol is another kind of kind of on top of the stress so the stress management is particular whether you need it or not just you look at different factors how are you sleeping how are you how are you finding your job so and then you kind of look at those how can we look at those individually to kind of improve it as such would you have looked into things like cognitive behavioral therapy or mindfulness or meditation as proactive things you could do to to manage stress levels so when i said about um like how would i program a rehabilitation for a 30 year old and seven year old cbt and mi are two of the biggest factors we do that through so mi is motivational interviewing so say for example you have an individual who doesn't exercise how do you motivate or as a poor nutrition whatever it may be but as exercise in my background we just kind of focus on that a little bit so how do you get someone who doesn't exercise to exercise? So that's true motivational interviewing. So it might be, and it goes into more detail as well, where you have in within motivational interviewing, you have your stages of change. So for example, you have pre-contemplation. They're not thinking about exercise changing. You have contemplation where oh, I'm thinking about exercising. You have preparation where, okay, I, I want to, I want to exercise, but I don't know how to do it yet. So maybe do I go to the gym? Do I start walking? 
you have action where they're doing the exercise, you have maintenance where they're doing that exercise for maybe six months and then you've relapsed. So when you're speaking to any individual, individual in a consultation, you have to say what stage of change are they in? So for example, if someone's in a pre-contemplation stage, they're not really thinking about exercise, you're not going to speak to that person and say, I think you should do 30 minutes of exercise five days a week. Do you have the recommendation? Because they're like, no, uh, no, I don't really want to. It's not really my thing. So then you have to kind of gear it towards pre-contemplation conversation. Okay, so what do you understand about exercise? Do you, what, what do you perceive the benefits to be? And getting them to weigh up the benefits of it, the cons to it, and getting them to think more about it. So you may not get them to exercise on that first consultation, but what you're doing is you're planting the seed. Then on the next consultation, you have that with that patient that to hopefully have moved to the next stage. Is motivational interviewing a particularly successful way to go about it? Because I'm fascinated by the idea of trying to enact behavior change in people. And like Mm. something, something as with with the likes of exercise like if you live a very sedentary lifestyle it, mm-hmm. it can be very very difficult to get to the point where you are moving your body every day like what is it like for you when you're trying to do these motivational interviews it can be very frustrating as a practitioner because i know the devastation or damage that not personally that I've had it myself, I know what a heart attack can do to someone. I know what it means. I know if I see an individual who's overweight, inactive, a lot of risk factors, as we mentioned earlier about the smoking, uh, God, I know where that can lead to. And then I know the massive burden that it has on the, the NHS or in the world, the amount of funding that goes into that. So I get frustrated and sometimes feel a bit angry. Um, like, why aren't you doing more? It's like you're getting these medications for your whatever... Um, so if you have blood pressure, the diabetes, whatever it may be, you're getting medications, but you're not doing anything to change it. So it's like, it feels like we're fighting an uphill battle. But that's where our expertise comes in and realize that a motivational interview and also cognitive behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy that we spoke about earlier, that that's another big thing. Um, and something I'm trying to look into more myself, that say, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy is when you look at a certain situation, how do you react to that? There's like, it can be as simple as two pronged approach. So for example, it was the way I see it. If you see someone in a shopping center, a friend, and for some reason you say hello to them at a distance and they don't respond to you. Do you go down the approach of point A is like, how dare they? Uh, Like, why are they ignoring me? And it's like, get very offended and upset by that. Or do you go down the approach B where it's, okay, maybe they're quite busy today and maybe they just, maybe there's something on their mind and normally they're, so that's the kind of behavior. It's changing people's kind of pathway of how they process information. So that kind of, we, that's where I try to bring in the exercise element as well. So for example, you have someone who doesn't perform exercise. Why don't they perform exercise? Did they have a bad experience with that? was it's like if someone say from a cardiac point of view oh I, I when I go jogging I get chest pain so therefore I'm really afraid to go jogging or I'm really afraid to go exercising or or when I had my heart attack it was while when I was cycling so then it's it's not about motivational interviewing to get that patient to exercise because they were an exercise it's more about the cognitive behavior around you had your event while cycling 
how do we change your mindset around that to help you understand that unfortunately the cycle may have triggered the event but that event was going to happen if it was something else so cycling is not bad for you so it's more cognitive behavioral therapy than just pe- changing people's mindset around it and try to get them to exercise again and feel make them feel confident that's not always you know just exercise it can be a nutrition behavior as well it can be you know can be applied to whatever practice as part of your job then i assume that you see a wide variety of different people in different situations and most likely you have to take different approaches like would the carrot and sometimes the stick or a blend of the two work for you like how how do you gauge how to approach an individual sometimes it's you you ask questions but when you're asking questions you have to understand that when you're asking questions you can't use that to judge the person you're using the questions to kind of get a better understanding so for example if you ask someone about their exercise history and if they never exercise you can't just assume they're lazy unmotivated and they're not going to exercise going forward but you're using that as we mentioned earlier to facilitate your conversation so for example like there's some people who would have a heart attack and, and that would be an in, instant kind of light bulb in their moment to say, oh, my God, I need to exercise more. I need to look at my nutrition. I need to do X, Y, and Z. It can be an instant kind of reaction to them. And you don't really need to do much with that person other than just make, make sure they're going down a, a safe pathway of exercise or whatever it may be. And they're not you know, starving themselves of food, et cetera. And then on the other hand, you have someone who has an event and it just doesn't really do much to them it, it, they're still smoking they're still doing whatever so but you still have to offer that person they have the same attention like you can't prejudge that person to say well if he's going to smoke then what's the point to be having a conversation with him because you can still have an impact on them and you can and it's just trying to find and tailor it as best you can like it does sound as well that like what I find in, in fascinating, you kind of hitting it there, is that so, with some people it takes this extreme trauma where mm. they are confronted with their own mortality and then they're able to change. And then some people it's a much, much slower approach and some people mm-hmm. will never change their behavior because behavior change also comes back to identity change in a way as well like you have to perceive yourself as somebody who exercises i assume yeah and um i guess there's a kind of a two element kind of problem there firstly it has to be like you say about traumatic event um and that's where i myself have looked into is like you see individuals have uh, achieved amazing feats be it from a yeah. business point of view, be it from an exercise point of view, maybe you know, climbed, climbed Mount Everest or something. What was their mindset like that allowed them to accomplish that? And and how do I translate that into our patients? So be it in the primary, before you have a draft, or like why, do, why does a patient have to have an event for it to sometimes trigger a more productive behavior change? So how can you instill those behaviors of, productivity but without having a significant event because sometimes they may oh my a close family member had an event or that's triggered me to readjust and look at my lifestyle so that's sometimes the challenges how what conversations you need to have with the patient to to kind of get them to move forward without actually having events to make those positive changes i think it's well it's it's nearly part of the 
wider human condition that rarely do we focus on the fact that we are all mortal at some stage we are going to leave this world like our own mortality mm. is something that day-to-day people just don't focus on and that's why it's just it's always such a shock when somebody dies like the idea that it's going to happen to you it doesn't seem to enter a lot of people's head until an event happened that triggers it there's the other factors that can contribute to that as well so it can be like as i was saying that kind of mindset and you know, what is their belief because sometimes it's saying it can trigger something but also the other aspect you got to look at as well is also people's economic status. So it's it's widely noted and researched that if you're from a lower socioeconomic area, there's a higher rate of obesity, there's a higher risk of smoking, there's a higher rate of alcohol. So you have to look at their social background as well. So for example, a previous job I worked in was a weight management program. Uh, and basically what it is, is we would recruit or not recruit, should I say, but if an individual had a BMI over 25, it was in primary health care, um, they were referred to a program as a weight loss program to you know, change, you know, and that would be through facilitation of exercise and nutrition to help lose weight, etc. In areas, I was living in Cambridge at the time in, in the city and in, in Cambridge, we had a really good uptake of people that were referred to the program. But then if you venture outside the city a little bit into areas that were a bit poorer or less education, and I worked on the adults and the kids side of things, it was really hard to get uptake from those people. And it was just because sometimes how do you get people to exercise that are in the pre-contemplation? You can't, you can't say, oh, go exercise. And I'm like, no, I don't want to exercise. I'm fine the way I am. So sometimes education factors come into it how educated is that individual not saying they have to have a a master's degree or whatever it may be but if the area they're living in and if they're surrounded by individuals as well and it's it's the same for everything else i guess as well if you're surrounded by people who are overweight poor lifestyle behaviors why should you step outside of that comfort zone and it's the same in business like if you want to or in social groups like if you want to strive to to achieve something in business or if you want so the whole thing is all about surrounding yourself by positive people and it that will affect a positive result on you as well if you're surrounding yourself with negative people who are saying you can't achieve this can't achieve that that sometimes it can just you know, inspire you on but a lot a lot of time it's it knocks you down as well so you have to look at the education side of things as well with some of the people that we see like humans as you said we're social creatures and we try to mirror our environments like the Mm. socioeconomic point as well it makes so much sense because like if you're in a a poor financial situation your mind is not thinking of the long term like you are trying to survive week Mm. to week so the idea of even maybe sometimes thinking of bettering yourself it's just you, you don't nearly have the the time or the energy to focus on that yeah, because you can't you're just have trying a conversation. You can't have a conversation with that person from a nutrition point of view. Oh, you should have more salmon in your. your you should have uh, avocados because they're like, no, oh, this is too expensive. I, I'm, I I can't afford that. So that's where us as kind of as you as you spend longer in a particular profession um, and holding kind of a senior position, you 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 start to realize that okay 
just say, for example, that you're having kind of fried food as such, how can we make adjustments within the fried food that you're having to make it healthier instead of asking you to buy salmon, fresh fruits and vegetables, avocados that are perceived expensive food and you need to go to the farmer's market to buy this. But if you're having, um, if you're frying certain foods, maybe just using a little bit of less oil, you know, there's like very small changes that you can make. And I think that's where as a practitioner, we, we learn to, understand the patient and sometimes empathy and kind of just putting ourselves in their shoes and trying to picture okay this is their current lifestyle how can we make a small step to move them forward but not too big of a step that says they can't do it and they're not able to do it because their self-efficacy in these patients can be quite low um and like i'm dealing with certain patients at the moment um uh, on a kind of a personal training basis where she's had an uh, individual like had heart failure and contracted COVID. Um, and it's just building her self-efficacy up to say that she can exercise and she can do this and she can move forward. That can be, you know, that's quite extreme saying that person, but also it's the same as someone in a, a low economic state where how do I change? I haven't got the money to buy these fancy foods. I haven't got the money for a personal trainer. I haven't got the money for this. I haven't got the money for that. So it's not saying that you need that, but it's, it's a small steps better a small step forward than a joint leap forward and then taking the throwing you totally off board as such you mentioned there that education is such a fundamentally important part of enacting behavior change if you were to look at creating new policies for younger children in the school years what sort of things would you like to see happen um, yeah, it's, it's always an interesting question because um, the, the, the thing with children is they're very inquisitive. They're always wanting to learn and it's they're kind of like a sponge in a way they've often been described where it's soaking so much information. So the challenging thing sometimes is if a child has a bad experience with exercise, with a tutor, and it kind of, it didn't like, you know, where it saw from an exercise point of view and it saw that in a negative way that kind of can stick with them for into adulthood and also um, can dictate how they respond in as an adult. So for example, there's lots of research out there that's saying that if your parents are overweight and active, there's a high likelihood that your child is going to be overweight and active. So, but without taking, taking the focus off the parents for the moment, I think sometimes when um, we're, we're, looking at exercising children we need to sometimes think of them as children they're not many adults mm. um so for example like on a previous job as i mentioned earlier um working in the the weight referral program as i was working with kids and adults and i was talking about the socioeconomic difference about getting it hard to get an uptake but when we were working with the kids and we were working from anywhere from one of the ages around maybe on seven or eight up to maybe like 15 we were it was an after schools program where I would go in um and my colleague would go in so for the first um it'd be about an 40 to 60 minutes of a session in the first 20 minutes half an hour would be exercise and creating fun games for them and the second part would be speaking to the nutritionist about you know how they can eat better but it, I think the important thing there was that we had the parent there as well so it was important to get the parent engaged because obviously and with the exercise as well i tried to arrange the exercises in a way where 
the, the parent was involved with the child. So they were to maybe do some tag game or just some throwing game, very simple games. But it wasn't about trying to get that child to lose weight because these child, these children as well were, were, were overweight. But you're trying to say you're exercising for the fun of it, not to try to lose X amount of pounds, etc. And then from the nutrition point of view as well, the parent was engaged with the child. So the parent learned about good nutrition practices and so did the child. So when they came to the cooking, maybe they could be involved in, et cetera, with that. And I think a lot of this stems back to as well. Remember I said about the bad experiences is there isn't enough, I don't think, education. You could say about more having more money and more funding. Like obviously if you had endless pools of money, you you imagine the obesity rate would go down and be so many programs out there. But I think a lot of time it can be the education of the adults with the kids. So there's a model out there called the long-term athlete development model. And I think that sometimes it's it's misconstrued with when you're looking at kids. So for example, it would say from maybe zero to six years old, um, and a little bit up to 12, you're looking at fundamental skills. You're looking at running, jumping, skipping, throwing, catching, all these basic skills that just builds a foundation. If you were to look at a pyramid as such, um, where at the bottom of the pyramid, you have these fundamental skills, and where at the top of the pyramid, you have like rugby, soccer, very specific skills, badminton as such. But if you start training kids, if you don't have those fundamental skills, like if a kid is struggling with running, catching, how are they going to be involved with, like for example, if you if you can't throw a ball correctly, I'm not saying you have to be quite skillful at that, but if you if you don't work on throwing, for example, as a skill, maybe throwing a balloon or throwing a torpedo type thing, how can you get into tennis? How can you get into badminton? There's a lot of sports that it relates to kind of throwing aspect, the arm movements. The same with running. If you feel if you feel awkward when you're running, how many sports is that going to eliminate for you? So when it comes to the ages of like 12, 13, when people are like, oh, I want to play soccer, I want to play um, rugby, I want to play tennis, I want to play hockey, they don't feel comfortable doing these sports because they feel they feel awkward. And sometimes, even when it gets to that age, you find sometimes that you specialize them too soon. So for example, um, when it gets to the ages of 12, it's like, oh, you're, you're, you're going to be a, you're going to be the next like Ronaldo in relation to soccer. So yeah, soccer is the only thing you're going to do. And then the kid, it just gets like they're, they wake up, they're thinking of soccer, playing soccer at nighttime. And it's just like, there's no fun in it anymore. It's more of a, like a training camp and such. And then they get bored of that. Like you see it a lot in, like, for example, if you want to be proficient in certain disciplines, you need to get into it at a young age. So like gymnastics, you need to start that at a young age. Um, because if you start that at like 12, it's not saying you can't be a good gymnast, but if you want to represent in relation to your county, country, et cetera, on the European stage, you need to be doing that from a young age. Yeah. Like fundamental yeah. body mechanics, you learn, yeah. you learn them as you grow. So it's, it's important to learn them when the mind is at its most malleable and developmental. Yeah. What blew my mind that I heard recently is that in Irish schools, they only devote 60 minutes a week to physical education. And a lot of teachers say that that session essentially sometimes falls by the wayside, but something like religion in Irish schools, far more time is dedicated Mm. towards that. What's it like in the UK at the moment in terms of like, what is the, the physical education plan for kids at primary level? 
So I'm not going to go too much into this, Sasha, because I, 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 I don't know a whole lot about it. But from what I understand is, um, phys- like in relation to GCSEs, I believe that exercise is actually part of the curriculum. So they need to achieve certain, I said they have to run 100 meters and get it when a certain time and such, but uh, edu- exercise and understanding the physiology of it is part of the curriculum. So it, 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 from what I understand, it does have more of a, a significance over here than it would in, in Ireland, especially in Ireland as well. If I, from my own experience, when I was, like I moved over to here about six years ago, but when I was living, studying in Ireland, it was when it came to the leave insert, the GC equivalent in the UK, it was kind of, you would drop PE or physical exercise because it wasn't that important and you had to focus more on your studies. Mm. So sometimes I don't feel like it's not necessarily about putting more money in. I think it's something that's around just creating more education because if once you can get it implanted at a younger age, it would facilitate them engaging in it at, it, or at an older age. More education is one thing, but you'd imagine that just dedicating more time throughout the week to get younger people used to the idea of moving every day would make complete sense as well no yeah and i think i think the way society is going we're going the opposite way to that for example for adults um kind of like 18 and above as such it's 30 minutes a day five days a week 150 minutes of moderate intensity whereas for kids it's like up to 60 minutes a day but as you can imagine with different kind of uh games etc the the amount of activity time they're experiencing they're not really getting that yeah and then the other thing that comes on top of that so as an adult or as a kid you get your 60 minutes you get your 30 minutes a day but what's getting a lot more research as well is sedentary behavior so just because say for example you do your 30 minutes of moderate intensity you go for a walk whatever it is also the amount of time you're spending sitting or sedentary outside of that is having a massive impact so that's another thing is so the kids may be active during school, but it's up to the parent as well. And it's up to the, the society around it, you know, getting involved in sports to keep the kid active outside of that hour, maybe going for walks or doing exercise at home. You see a lot of Joe Wicks over here, which is kind of popularized exercise, especially with the younger generation in relation to kind of a form of like high intensity training where you do like 20 seconds to 60 seconds exercise and you take a bit of a break and you do it again. You mentioned there that you've been living in the UK six years now. What what was your original decision to move there? And how do you find it differs from life in Ireland? Um, I said, once again, it's my own personal experience. So I can't say this is the way Ireland is or this way UK is. But at the time, um, my undergraduate was more on a sports science. And I felt at the time when I was in Ireland, if I... I I'm, I'm always wanting to do better and do more um, just from a personal kind of drive within myself. Um, so basically I felt if I stayed there, I would have been just a personal trainer or maybe working in like sports development officer where I'm promoting activity within my community, or it might've been a PE teacher. So I felt like my career's prospects were limited, not to say there's anything wrong with those careers, but for me, I wanted more options and more, more scope. Because it's, it's, you know, I just graduated. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do because it's such a broad subject as such, studying in sports science. So then I felt uh, moving over to the UK, um, the amount of money and research and funding here is just more established. So there's a lot more scope. So, for example, 
I first started off working as a personal trainer in a gym. Then it moved uh, into more the physiology side of things. So basically I was doing health assessments on individuals where I carry out lung function assessments, ECGs, spinal assessments, nutrition assessments. I'd analyze their blood markers. I'd analyze their urine, stool samples, testing like for, for cancer is. So it developed a new kind of instinct in relation to look at more the clinical side of things. So not just getting people about, oh, you need to lose weight. You need to run a faster 5K time. It's more about looking at the whole of the person. So the well-being of a person, not just if the number isn't dropping on a scale, what work I'm doing from an exercise point of view is useless. So I was just looking at that whole person. I mean, that's where whole psychology didn't come in. And then that followed on into working the weight management programs where it was more kind of pre- primary care, or like preventative care. And then from that, then it, I got, I tried to get more specialized working in the cardiac rehab. Um, in, as I was saying earlier, if someone had a heart attack or a cardiac arrest or had certain um, incidents, I'd work on an eight week rehabilitation program with them. And then of course that developed even further then onto working more with um, um, sports cardiology in relation to individuals who, who were born with maybe genetic conditions and how how do we exercise those patients? Because you can influence them with lifestyle factors, but it, it only goes so far. Besides Supermax, is there anything you miss about Irish life or Irish culture, or have you very much assimilated into life in the UK? No, it's just Supermax. <laughs> it was hilarious, man. For your, stag, actually, no, no, sorry. for your stag, the first sorry, thing Supermax that and breakfast roll. So not, not, no, not just Supermax, breakfast roll as well. It's hilarious. Like for like when we collected you for your stag in Dublin, the first thing as soon as you got into the car was like, right, where is the nearest Supermax? And we were like, Shane, it's like yeah. fucking midnight. Like you were out of luck. I don't like, care. You're don't so care. disappointed. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, honestly, if I could move my my Irish heritage over here, I would. Like, if I had my family over here, if I had my friends over here, I it would be. I I would I would enjoy it more over here, but. In relation to my own personal drive, my own personal well-being, what gets me up in the morning, what motivates me is the, the, the feel I'm doing some good, the feel I'm progressing my own inner kind of spiritual knowledge, you could say as such. Not just I'm helping patients, but I feel like I'm helping myself and progressing forward. And that's something I didn't feel I could achieve in Ireland. So although I could go back in Ireland and be surrounded by family and friends, I feel I might become stagnant in my own personal development. And that is a was a key for me moving over here and also a key for why it would be difficult for me to move back. Because the, the career pathway that I just spoke about, with like a 1%, 2% chance that I would have achieved that same career, career progression back in Ireland. Last time I talked to you, you mentioned two things motivation and willpower what do those mean to you or where do you draw them from i guess from a kind of motivation and willpower i guess it's kind of the need to do something better for myself um as to where to what point that actually happened why do i feel like i want like i wasn't didn't have it like a traumatic childhood that um that could that could sometimes that we said earlier we talked about events that sometimes can trigger it for certain individuals 
Um, I guess I, it's the philosophy that I always had was I'm a by, I'm a byproduct of my actions, not of my not of my my kind of my background as such. So basically, what I what not those exact words. Basically, what it means is I'm more on the belief that if you grew up in a an unprivileged area, if you grew up in a privileged area, or whatever, and anywhere in that spectrum, what you do going forward is not, I don't think your background will dictate what you do going forward. I think it's up to you to make those decisions and how you make those decisions can be influenced by your background, but I don't think it's the deciding factor. So for example, like you could have some individuals who grew up in certain maybe abusive household and where one individual would carry on the traits of that household when they have their own family and you have another individual who just like, no, I, this, I saw what the damage they did. I'm going to be good and go down the total opposite way. And, and I think it's more about mindset, behavior, as you said about the CBT, chronic behavioral therapy, how you see perceived certain situations. So that's what me, I feel like what I achieved or what I grew up in in my childhood shouldn't be a limitation to what I achieve going forward. Like I wasn't very academic when I was younger. From a, if you from a percentage point of view, we dealt with points, and I got about if if one hundred percent was the maximum points you could get, I got around I think it was like fifty something percent points. And and it's not like my grades are going up now to like a B and an A or anything. My grades are still not great, but it's more about it's my motivation and determination that's getting me to where I am, not my necessarily my grades. We became friends when we were about seven years old, when you moved to Raheen. And before mm-hmm. that, you lived in what you could call a lower socioeconomic area in Limerick. Mm-hmm. What are your memories from that time? Thankfully, not much. <laughs> 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 I guess... Um, I think it's sometimes like when I think when you're in a particular situation, I think making changes can have a big impact. So, for example, apparently when I moved to Raheen, my accent was different than it is now. I had a it's like not, I didn't have such a desirable accent or kind of it was a bit more stronger, a bit more kind of harsh accent. More of and, an uh, inner city nasally limerick accent, if you want to call yeah. it. Or you can have but. Yeah, I tried to be polite how to say it, but yes, that's correct. And uh, and so basically the accent I have now or the way I speak now wasn't the way I spoke then. And I think sometimes like sometimes getting yourself out of that, that lifestyle can also dictate how to go forward. But for living in that environment, I think if I grew up there, would I achieve what I achieved today if I didn't move to Raheen? It's, it's, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. Um, Because I would have had different external influences that are would maybe not been so productive to what I wanted to achieve. As we said earlier about surrounding yourselves with positive people, it would result in you doing positive things potentially. So it would have been more negative. Um, So I feel like making that move, obviously wasn't my decision with my parents. It was very positive for me. And I felt when I moved to Raheen Din, I had a, a more productive surrounding of friends then as well because some of the friends I had when I was living in before I moved some of them ended up in jail from what I understood as I as I, as I learned as I got older doing the work you do now and having at least been born 
in that sort of an environment, it must at least give you an empathy that not everybody has or an understanding of where certain people are coming from because of their environment. Yes. Yes. I'm not going to say no. I had a, like I, like I was like, could have went down to drugs and, and things like that kind of route. No, no, no. But I did see like potentially two sides of the coin. I saw an area because Limerick is quite small of a city. Like it's like you live in one part, it's quite respected and you go to another part you may not feel as safe walking there, particularly in nighttime. So, but the area is hard. very close. Like yeah, yeah, and it, yeah, exactly. It's and it's very close. You you easily saw those kind of. And you had you were you were very grounded. What I say is probably a better term to to kind of put it. So when I speak to patients now, I'm not saying they're from deprived areas, but I I can learn to empathize with them or kind of just understand that you you've had a heart attack you've had event it may be contributors to that was because you're smoking your alcohol but i'm happy to help you change if you're open to change and i'm not going to use that as a prejudgment to say why you you chose this lifestyle so it's your fault as such no 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 not at all so i definitely and i don't think just because i came from that lifestyle that's the reason i feel that way but i definitely feel it it probably helps me to kind of uh helps me my kind of arsenal of, uh, of skills that I can bring to an assessment as such. Since moving to the UK, you've acquired some property. What has it been like becoming a landlord? Like, what has that whole process been like for you? It's been interesting, actually. It's uh, where I guess myself and my wife now, we, we are looking at, into securing a future. And we believe securing a future um, part of that to be to maybe offer our kids the opportunities that we may not have had when we were younger so if they want to engage in a particular sport or a particular activity that we're not saying that we don't have the financials to do that if they want to engage in a certain education so the way to facilitate that we feel is by investing and one of the ways we do that is in in property and it's 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 added a new responsibility which is interesting but also very challenging because it's because you're trying to think ahead so when you are like you're buying a property okay you have to look at they do searches and you're sent loads of information about the property that you're buying what is the potential of a the the flooding in the area what is the previous history checks on it there's so many different legal documents you have to look through and ask questions about them because the because the solicitors that carry out the searches just carry out the searches. They don't really ask a whole lot of questions. So they have no skin in the game. No, and it's just like these are searches. If you want me to ask a question on your behalf, I will. But you need to propose the question to ask. So it definitely adds a new level of responsibility um, into being an adult as such, where it's kind of every like for example, like would I love to just move to Australia for a period of time for like five months? love to mainly because of the weather and living by the beach but i have a responsibility where i and where i can't just do that i have to like i have a job i have a lifestyle and i have to be sensible about the moves that i make and like everything i do if i move to a job if i change my job not how would that impact me but how will it impact my family how will it impact my future as such and the same with being a landlord i have to 
am I acquiring this property to rent it out? Am I acquiring it to live in it? How do I, everything has to be thinking forward, which can sometimes be challenging for me because sometimes I can be a little bit, I want immediate returns. <laughs> you're, you're a little bit more tactical than strategic. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I have to, for my career, it's been more strategic um, in relation to the progression I did in my career. Each stage was a, a planned stage, but sometimes on other aspects of my life, it's more tactical. What's the perception of landlords in the UK? Because in Ireland, there is no respect given to landlords. Like landlords are, I'd nearly call them a hated class because it it, it comes back to like Ireland's relationship and history with the land. Like I, I think there's something in terms of like genetic memory in Ireland with people getting kicked off their land back in the day during like famine times that there's there's nearly a a real lack of disrespect for landlords in Ireland. What's it like in the UK? There's probably some element of here as well, like, but it, I think it really depends on the area you're living in. For example, we have two rented properties. One is in London and one is where I live in St. Albans. The one in London, um, and when I was living in London as a tenant, it's the the tenant gets no worse gets no respect the so basically it's no respect no it's all about the landlord so basically what that means is if you move into a property that is below standard maybe mold is growing in it maybe there's some fixings that need to be done to it the tenant doesn't really have much rights well they have rights as such but if you complain to the landlord that's it's like the likelihood of that being fixed is it's not really going to happen as such and and you can as you can imagine london is quite an expensive place to live and you're paying a lot of money for like to get a, a normal acceptable accommodation you're sharing with three or four people and you may be paying like six seven hundred pounds plus for that room so in london the property demand at least before pandemic pandemic anyway is quite high in demand so if you don't like it get out I can easily just find someone to replace you. That's not an issue. So I found it was more on the landlord, or sorry, on the tenant in London. But in where I live now, outside of London, I feel it's more on the on a tenant side of things. Um, for example, um, I've ha- I've known some cases where some friends are renting properties, and there was maybe some mold in the um, in the property, and the tenant got the council in to look at the property and then the council wrote a letter to the landlord saying if this is not fixed within a certain amount of time um we're going to take further action that's like literally unheard of in london like because it's just like okay just move out i get a new tenant it probably comes back to that whole supply and demand thing as in yeah yeah it is the roles are completely reversed based on where you where you are in the country yeah i I definitely feel that is the case in relation to yeah particularly in london because uh like it's just it's such a, a populated area such a night you know uh, an area that people want to live in like from from a career development point of view i found it myself i think london is an amazing place to work from a career development like for example the turnover in jobs is quite high so when i was working in the nhs and working in london so for, like it's a band position so i'm a band six at the moment so as a band four if I want to get to a band five in that role, in that in that hospital, it was quite challenging. 
because there wasn't a lot of opportunity to progress. Put it in a hospital next door or down the road, there's a band five position. So then I'd leave the current job and move to the band five, get band five experience. And then once I got up to a certain number of experience, there's, you know, because the teams are quite small, it's difficult to progress to a band six. So another hospital, they have band six open. So I hopped onto that. So I found London amazing for that, even outside the NHS, where you may find it difficult to progress within a certain, a certain company you're in, but in the company, a very short distance away, the opportunity is there and people move a lot around a lot. So it's, I found London great for progressing your career, but long term, once you find kind of an established kind of level of um, authority or kind of level of uh, experience, you want to get out of London. I did anyway. And then use that knowledge to get a higher position outside of London. Then London is a city that I love to visit because like it's, it's such an energetic place mm, and so much diversity. there's so much thing you can do. It's so multicultural, but I always found that for me, it was a place that I loved to visit, but after fucking 72 hours, I wanted to get the fuck out of there. It's just, it's just too big and bustling and always on the go. Like you mentioned there that you, you eventually wanted to move out. Did you enjoy city life? Was it something that you appreciated for a period of time or were you always looking to eventually move out once you were in the position career-wise to do so? I guess it can maybe depend on age a little bit. So, for example, like if you're early in your career and if you're in your, you know, or if you're not early in your career, but you're in your early 20s, maybe from a personal experience, London can be an amazing place, like from different, the different bars that you can go to, the different people that you can meet. It's not, I find, obviously there's exceptions, but I feel it's, it's a non-judgmental, like LGBT is very big in London as well. So there's there's very little discrimination towards that. You'll have pockets, of course, but it's very open. You meet loads of people. Like it's quite often that you go out to a company or whatever your job is, and when you finish work, you go for drinks. It's it's very common. So to expand your horizons and from a personal point, of, personal development, and also from a career development, it was amazing. But then I guess you get to a point where, okay, I'm getting a little bit older now. I'm not so enthusiastic about going drinking most nights and I don't really want to go to pubs or clubs. I want the more kind of relaxed lifestyle that may be because of personality or maybe because of age. Um, and, and I'm also in my thirties. I, I don't want to be sharing anymore. I don't want to be in a, like to be in your thirties and, and in a shared uh, accommodation is extremely common in London where in, in Limerick it's a, it's maybe not so common as such whereas over london like you'd be in 30s 40s you could be in a three-bed shared accommodation and that's very common so if you because because to afford a property in london unless you're going to a not so desirable area is extremely hard so it's more about not wanting to live the lifestyle anymore it's more about just wanting some space that you can call your own other than a room and just looking out and seeing green, seeing not so hectic, not so stressful environment. There were kind of factors that wanted me to move out from London. Like if I lived outside London and working outside London, my career progression wouldn't have been the same either. 
So that's, when I so when I say I moved to the UK, I more like moved to around London as opposed to moving north or south of England or, or whatever it may have been. It's nearly as well as you progress throughout your life, like what you value changes. And as well, oh, like if, if you're yeah. young and single, most people want to be in the bigger city. Like it's just mm-hmm. it's just the way things go. Um, Shane, I find it refreshing that you you love what you do. Like I, I, I love to speak to somebody who's actually passionate about what they do mm-hmm. in terms of their career. In terms of like work life balance, how do you switch off or like what do you do in your free time? I guess that's difficult for me sometimes, but it's not because I have the pressure of work on me. So, for example, I'm at a stage at the moment in my career that um, the banding that I'm at, there's people retiring at that banding and you get a good respectable wage. Like with each band, there's a pay point of schedule. Like so I don't need to get to a higher band to because I'm still on a low level. So I've achieved that level at the moment. So for me, moving up the bands or sorry, earning more money or getting further in my career. It's just because my own my own personal or inner drive. So when you say about what do I do in my free time, sometimes it's just studying and reading up on this, doing a master's at the moment. It's just, that's me. And that's what, so for example, like if I finish work at five, I would find it very hard to watch TV for two or three hours, extremely hard to watch TV for two or three hours because in the back of my mind, I'm like, this is not productive. It's not give me any new knowledge it's not progressing me in any way so I, I don't want to do it and I get a bit agitated so how I do this so how I combat that sometimes is just involving myself in different activities so using the gym I'm uh I love the gym I um although I may not look like I love the gym even though being a person trainer as well um I it's more the gym is more for me in my psychological or my mental health well-being as such as opposed to looking bigger or feeling bigger obviously that there are benefits as well but if like i'm exercising at the moment i'm keeping a respectable weight i'm cycling but i really miss lifting weights and get that euphoric feeling and that feeling of energy that you get in the gym as well because you're surrounded by people trying to better themselves and again it's you're in an environment where people are dedicated to self-improvement and you feed off that yeah i feel like sometimes my the gym is my muse in a sense that where I am in my life, my career, whatever it may be, uh, like personal relationships, etc., I feel sometimes I get light bulb moments in the gym because it just clears my mind. And sometimes you get people like, you know, moving, like if they're writers or artists, they might move to the countryside and just surround themselves and just like let their mind open, be free, and then they'll get their most beautiful work then. But for me, I find the gym and um, is where I get where I get my ideas, where I get like, oh, maybe it gives me motivation. Where if you think of it as a fuel tank, where your the work that you do in your day to day may drain you down to like sixty percent full, fifty percent full. I find when I go to the gym, that gets my fuel tank right up to 90 percent again. So that's why I've been struggling a lot, um, by without the gyms because it was my my life, but my muse, my kind of my fall safe or fail you know that's what I fell back to like as such when I was struggling whatever it may have been how have you adapted your training and exercise during the pandemic without the gyms it's been difficult like it's definitely not from a lack of knowledge because I was saying from my sports science being a personal trainer I'm very kind of equipped with how to exercise with very little equipment as such but it's more 
that internal or extrinsic motivation for me when I stepped into the gym and walked through that doors it was like in my mind okay work I'm in here for a reason get in get out and maybe kind of the odd time I'd kind of flap around a bit just because it's nice <laughs> but at home it's it's hard to get that mentality you know like you're okay I'm in now sitting down and watching tv or whatever or, or maybe reading something and then it's like okay I gotta move two meters to the right and then that's my gym environment it's it's hard to do to separate or the, I fully agree as in like like we're such habitual creatures like you have specific areas for specific tasks and when you mm. walk into the gym you know what you're going to do there whereas mm. trying to create that in a place where you've only had downtime it's it's tough to make that mindset switch in a way yeah and it's difficult and you see those those mindset behaviors being discussed as well like for someone who has sleeping issues or sleeping problems like you like for example if you're struggling to sleep you get a lot of advice from uh people that say get out of bed go into a different room so that you associate when you're in a bed that you only sleep that you don't go into the bed to kind of uh look at your phone for nine hours yeah yeah watch tv or whatever it may be that when you go into bed you associate it with sleep so when your mind is all when you go into that bed it adapts quicker so that's then if you're struggling to sleep you're waking up at three o'clock in the morning don't stay in bed staring at the ceiling get up go walk around for a bit uh sit in the sitting room for a bit or whatever maybe get out of the bedroom as such and i think that's sometimes with the kind of situation is I i find it hard personally myself i find it hard to get myself out of the environment associate where where it's kind of like okay i know i should get out of the room if i want to sleep but i can't get out of the room i have to stay here and it's the same with the gym i like i know i i should get go to the gym to exercise but i can't i have to stay in this room so that's why i've incorporated cycling a lot now and i've um and i've i kind of went on facebook and like oh i'm into cycling these are my stats for cycling if anyone's around the same stats you know, I live in this area where you have to go cycling and I've met someone now and we've been doing it since November last year. Fair play. Um, mm. You mentioned sleep there. Uh, what do you like as a sleeper? Is it something you struggle with? Are you somebody who can switch off very, very easily? Um, for me, it's I've, I've never really had an issue with sleep. Uh, I've had a, a sleep, an issue with sleep on the opposite end. So for example, I can easily get too much sleep so I would love in my innate nature to get up at wake up at like seven o'clock in the morning and just get up but for me no I wake up at seven it's like oh I don't have to get up and I'll sleep till like 12 o'clock and even just lie in bed I'm for me my bed is my my like kind of my sanctuary a bit in as well it's like it feels so nice in bed and I don't want to get out of it so then I kind of in my mindset then I'm like okay so what I've done recently, um, before the recent kind of uh, lockdown we had was, I'd actually get up and go to the gym at, be in the gym for seven o'clock in the morning. I'm always exercising in the evening. I've always done that. After work, go to the gym. But what I found is, when, as I said earlier, when I attend the gym, it gives me that amazing boost of kind of energy. But what use is that energy at like seven o'clock, eight o'clock at night? So what I started to do is go to the gym in the morning. And I, I only managed to do it for like three weeks before lockdown kicked and gyms shut down. Um, and it was an amazing feeling. I was so much more productive at work. Even when I finished work at five, I was 
normally I'd be like oh, tired or to go to sleep or to go to the gym kind of thing. And it, it would it and it wasn't that. I was I was still energetic and still motivated. And I think sometimes a tweak in your current behavior can sometimes have a, a big impact on how you how your day is. And it took like I've been training since I was like 18 years old. And only in the last couple of months have I started exercising in the morning and it's been an amazing change for me i i like for me exercise has to come first thing in the morning because later in the day my willpower is far less like i mm. i can fuck off something at six o'clock in the evening because it's just like ah too tired but like starting your day by moving your body first of all like the rest of the day your level of stress is much lower because you've got gotten rid of a lot of that anxious energy if that makes sense mm. yeah and it's just like what you might have been thinking about from the day before as i said the light bulb moment the gym for me or, or not gym but could be cycling doing yoga pilates whatever it is the drive for the individual person as we said earlier about that cognitive behavioral therapy for me the gym was i may go in with negative thoughts but i come out with a, a very positive mindset shane i'm really conscious of your time but before we finish up uh, would you mind telling me a little bit about your upcoming thesis? Ah, oh, yes, it's a it's a very fascinating area. It's an area that it's from the research I'm doing that's not actually researched that well. So basically, what I'm looking at is individuals who gaze in hazardous um in job uh, scenarios. Occupations? So that might, occupations, yeah. So that might be like a if you're like if you're a fighter pilot, if you're joining the army, or in my instance, I'm looking at firefighters, what are the pre-assessments that they should undergo before they engage in that activity? So there's some interesting data out there, more predominantly from the US, that says that over 40%, I think it was like 44% of firefighters die of a sudden cardiac death. What sudden cardiac death means is you're dying from a condition that in the firefighters that's not related to kind of a, a car crash and not related to building collapsing or kind of smoking inhalation or whatever it may be. It's from something in you that wasn't right. Factors that we spoke about earlier that could be contributing to that, maybe cholesterol, blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, genetic factors, etc. So I looked at that in the UK and found from like 1987 to around 2007, um, with firefighter deaths, um, over 30% of firefighter deaths were classed as natural causes. Which means? So, which means that it was something to do with the heart. It was something that it was just a natural thing, a natural thing that these individuals would happen. So it wasn't, as I was saying, it wasn't because of hazard of the application of the job in relation to like a, a crash or it was a building collapsing or whatever it may have been. When you look at the age of those natural causes deaths, the age was around 45, the average age of individuals. So, Jesus and, we, Christ. And, and I know from working in cardiovascular disease that if you're going to um, die from cardiovascular disease, it's not that age, that's young. The age that we see of someone developing cardiovascular disease and having implications from that, like a heart attack, is, is individuals in their 60s and 70s because it takes decades for the arteries to clog up with kind of that plaque being from the certain lifestyle behaviors to cause an issue. So these individuals are too young. 
to be dying of natural causes. So when I looked into that further, then you see that sometimes for these individuals, they may have risk factors that contributed to that early demise that, and the act of firefighting increased the risk of having that death. So if they weren't doing a firefighting activity, there's data to suggest that they would not have had that, they would not have died at that age and they would have died later in life. So then I started looking at the screening mechanisms that firefighters undergo and it came up to be substandard in relation to the undergo yes a medical from the gp but the medical they do is very basic medical in relation to what any general uh, person would undergo in relation to looking at listening to the heart um with a telescope it may be checking the ears the eyes any knee movement hip movement just a very basic they're also undergoing a fitness assessment but what we what we what they're missing what other professions have adopted is an ECG. And it looks at the, the, the electrical status of the heart. What does ECG stand for? And like when you're speaking about all this, is, is this what's sometimes referred to as sudden adult death syndrome? Yes, yes. So basically, ECG is electrocardiogram. Um, and what you may have seen individuals before, there can be two kind of ways. It's more of a genetic predisposed. For example, you might have heard I think for, for Brees Namamba, it was a, a premiership player. I think he, he died on the pitch while playing the sport. Yeah. So but with the firefighter current assessment of the medical with the GP and the, um, and the undergo like a fitness test where they run on a treadmill and they have to get a certain level of uh, capacity to deem to be deemed fit, you know, it's a false sense of fitness. Um, they don't undergo ECGs, and ECGs detect those abnormalities. And the only way to detect those abnormalities is through an ECG. So, if you compare like a questionnaire and a GP assessment to an ECG, it'll only detect maybe 10 to 30 percent of the abnormalities, where the ECG can detect up to 99 percent of them. Wow. So by by implementing ECGs to more at-risk professional groups, what sort of like percentage are you talking in terms of like lives saved or like what what's the what's the outcome or what could the the benefits be? So for example, if you started screening screening life like um, firefighters with ECGs. And also another element of a stress test where they do where they undergo um, a treadmill test attached to ECG to see how the heart responds under exercise. The percentage of specificity of picking up that or percentage of um, reliability increases up to 90%. So you're you're missing a large you're catching a large percentage. So I'm not saying that the 30% or so of firefighters that died, I'm not gonna say that the there would have been no deaths. What I'm saying is there's a potential, a strong potential for that number could have been a lot lower than it was. Especially I've seen some, when I was doing my research, that there were certain quotes that were said that the firefighters were going to die anyway. So they, they died at like 40 something, well, they're going to die anyway. Yes, but they may have died in their 60s or 70s. Jesus Christ. And also you're having a firefighter that... We just think of a, an example where a firefighter is going into a, a burning building and is trying to save certain lives. And if that firefighter was to die during that event, 
that's putting the lives they're trying to save at more risk and also their teammates at risk because it's a team effort. So, for example, fighter pilots would undergo an ECG as well as part of their uh, as part of their initial assessment to detect for these abnormalities. Because obviously the risk factors as well that we spoke about earlier can contribute to these abnorm abnormalities as well. So that's why it's important to do that initial assessment also to retest every two to three years. So my thesis then is just looking at what current research is out there with the firefighters, what's the link with the assessment, the ECGs, and what's the current understanding. And then I plan to run focus groups and kind of do the firefighters, would they be happy to implement something like ECGs? Because ultimately as well with ECGs, it's telling them something that they don't know about, but do they want to know it? Mm. You're telling them something that potentially end their career if there's an abnormality found out. So it's that dilemma of do they want to know? For example, if you, but it's a standard procedure in Italy, um, all professional teams um, undergo an ECG as part of their assessment from the youth up to the adults. In the UK, it's involved in the FA, uh, the Football Association. It's involved in the rugby. It's involved in the cricket. And other sports, you know, might be involved in cycling, but only for certain teams, such as opposed to throughout the whole thing. And it's also involved in the army as well. So there's a lot of there's a lot of clubs and groups that do it, but it, sometimes it comes down to a funding issue. But ECGs are very, very cheap to run, and also take like five minutes to do one as well. So I'm trying to just create awareness, the benefit of it in the firefighter community and also try to see if I can make some significance there. Shane, before we finish up, I have one last question. What does success mean to Shane Parcel? <laughs> I feel like that's a difficult question to answer because if you ask me now, or if you asked me uh, like three years ago, before I'm in my current position, what would success be? I'd be like, I want to get to that position that I'm in. Now that I'm in that position, I don't feel like I've achieved success. I don't think, for me, I need to achieve steps to consider myself successful. So for example, I'm current position, current education, current contribution to society, what I'm doing at the moment. In three to five years, if I'm in the exact same position as I am now, I would consider myself unsuccessful. And if I'm contributing the exact same as I did now, I would consider myself unsuccessful. So for me, it's just always moving forward. And it's moving the goalpost forward to a point that's achievable, though, not unachievable, that where you you are like saying, oh, I'm going to represent like the, I'm going to be the next president or whatever. You know, it's just something, it has to be achievable within your range, within your scope, within your kind of drive. And once you've achieved that, move it a little bit forward again, move a little bit forward again. So it's a small steps forward. The idea of success being self-improvement is a beautiful thing. Um, yes, yes. Shane, man, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you today. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Great. Thank you. We'll have to do it again sometime. Peace. If you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate it if you helped spread the word. By sharing this episode with your family and friends subscribing to the Kevin Doherty podcast and following me 
on Instagram at the Kevin Doherty Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you.